In uh, contemporary America, psychedelic drugs are usually considered some quaint experiment of the hippie era, or worse, a horrible menace that shall forever be stamped taboo. Shamanism, the primal religion, is usually of interest only to anthropologists or naive New Agers. It is therefore a bold move to not only seriously investigate these two subjects, but to suggest that their intersection is actually where we may find answers to some of our most perplexing existential, philosophical, spiritual, and environmental dilemmas. That bold move has been made by Daniel Pinchbeck and is wonderfully chronicled in his astonishing book, Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism. He is our special guest today, and I am praying that we actually have him on uh, the board now. Daniel, are you there? I think so. I think I'm here. <laughs> okay. I really apologize to you and all the no, listeners. No let's just uh, yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. let's go go for it yeah so let's get right into this um, tell us a little about the uh, existential crisis that sort of set you on the path from jaded New York journalist to serious investigation of plant hallucinogens in the primal religion of shamanism yeah well I guess yeah the book uh, breaking up in the head started when I was in this kind of miserable spiritual crisis existential meltdown uh, I guess about 10 years ago or something, or maybe even a little more than that, 12 years ago. And I sort of, you know, was a secular materialist, atheist. I went back to my past and, and tried to figure out if I'd ever felt any other kind of contact with, you know, other spiritual possibilities. And I remember some psychedelic experiences that I had in college with mushrooms and LSD. And so I decided that I would, you know, explore that stuff seriously. And since I was a journalist, I got some assignments. I was able to go to West Africa, to Gabon. I went through tribal initiation, taking a psychedelic called Iboga. And I went down to uh, the Amazon in Ecuador, worked with a tribal uh, group there called the Sequoia. And they have a psychedelic uh, drink, which is called ayahuasca. Uh, I also visited the Mazatec Indians in Mexico, uh, where were working with the mushrooms. And, uh, yeah, I began to kind of uncover this whole kind of uh, shamanic uh, reality. Yeah, and, and so you uh, then became this sort of different person. You had these uh, kind of set ideas, sort of a rationalist view that uh, many modern Americans have, and and that kind of got torn asunder. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Iboga initiation ritual there in uh, Gabon, what, what that was like? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, basically, the breaking up in the head was like the step-by-step process of moving from secular materialism and into these the shamanic experiences, and then having these kind of uh, psychic and transformative kind of uh, visionary ventures, and, and slowly sort of seeing in my worldview a change in the process. But, uh, yeah, iboga uh, is this root bark of the, of the plant, and you scrape it off and you eat it, and it's actually being used as a uh, experimental treatment for heroin and cocaine addicts, especially heroin. Uh, and um, before I went there, I talked to a number of people about it and read about it and heard that it had been described as 10 years of psychoanalysis in a single night, which, of course, sounded impossible to me. But when I had the experience of taking the aboga in this ritual, it was like this very, very long night where I had a lot of uh, psychoanalytic kind of uh, visions and insights and um, really kind of like went back to my early childhood and sort of visited all these, these very difficult spots uh, in my development. And, uh, you know, um, many insights came from this experience, and among them 
was kind of seeing the alcohol and its effect on my life up to that point, and um, that it really had a negative effect on my relationships and my writing and, and my choices. And really, after that experience, I, I permanently cut down on my use of alcohol. So the when somebody goes through the Iboga initiation ritual, they have, among other things that occur, a an experience that that is very similar to somebody who has the classic near-death experience where they go through the life review and you go all the way back and uh, over everything that happened from the beginning up to that point, and uh, and that's one of the things that happened to you. Yeah, I mean, um, I I, I suppose. I I suppose there's some similarities there. I haven't done a lot of studying into the whole uh, near-death experience thing. Yeah, then you also get some visionary insights into the future. And uh, then I also found that some of the, sh- the shamans, when they took the aboga, you know, had insights about, about me that were really astonishing. Like one of them saw that my mother's mother had died recently. Uh, and he sort of said this out of the blue. Also, the guy who I'd gone down with during his initiation, he, the, the aboga had, had shown him that he wasn't, wasn't going to live very long, and he actually died about a year later. So I, I sort of collected many experiences like that, my own and other people's, which suggested that there was a kind of psychic and, and telepathic, uh, you know, aspects of reality. Yeah, there's this whole thing of where you, you kind of can't remain that sort of rationalist, fundamentalist, materialist, and you, you have to come to this place of where you realize that consciousness seems to be something more than we ever thought, or maybe the prime thing in, in reality. Is that would well, that be? Well, yeah. I mean, and that really corresponds to, you know, the kind of trajectory of a lot of, uh, you know, thought. Also, I mean, I mean, we're in this materialist paradigm, but you know, if you look at quantum physics, it really puts the perspective that consciousness is fundamental to matter. That's also the perspective of Buddhism, Eastern metaphysics. So yeah, so I mean, that's part of what I look at in my second book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. That somehow there's this integration happening of kind of science and spiritual. Uh, knowledge systems coming together. Yeah, yeah it, it, that that you kind of uh, some of the things you discovered through doing this book, breaking open the head, came. Uh, you developed further in the the second book. Uh, exactly, yeah. two thousand twelve. Yeah. Okay. So the the, the iboga ritual. And you said this uh, the the ibogaine, the the drug that synthesized from the iboga plant, has been used experimentally for treating people with uh, heroin and cocaine addiction and other other addictions. And and the reason that it seems to work is it's for a couple of reasons because it does that thing where you go back and review your life and and see where you've made mistakes and, and kind of correct those uh, psychological issues it also seems to somehow reset the receptors so that you don't have uh, those withdrawal problems so much is that correct with the yeah, well in fact in people who are serious addicts when they do it the first time or the first couple of times they often won't have many visions whatsoever they'll just have this incredibly Sort of strong buzzing in their head, and, and it's really almost like the the the, uh, the drug or the medicine is, is meshing back together their brain hemispheres, because uh, that's a whole theory about addiction is that there are people a lot of people suffered uh, early childhood trauma or sex abuse, and it kind of forced uh, it made their brain hemispheres not communicate properly. So only by taking drugs can they feel normal. So the iboga sort of temporarily uh, you know meshes together people's brain hemispheres. It's a theory anyway. That allows them to kind of have this reset where they can where they can start again. Okay, and the 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 iboga ritual that you did in uh, Africa lasted how many hours? 
that that substance is a very long lasting one. I mean, it re- sort of goes on for. I mean, it lasts for like fifteen or twenty hours. Then the residu- residual effects probably last like three days. And actually, if, if you take a strong dose, you actually need less sleep for even like a month or two after the experience. It seems to reset something else in your brain also as far as sleep is concerned. Uh, yeah, d- for sure, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so you, did, you went down to Africa and did this Iboga ritual, and then you also went to um, South America and did the, the ayahuasca ritual, which is this uh, uh, hallucinogenic plant brew that they make. It's made from two different plants. And uh, there are these different ayahuascaros in, in in actually all different. There's a quite a wide region in, in South America where this is practiced. Correct? Yeah, it's it's all up and down the Amazon from Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador. Um, yeah, so it's 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 all through the Amazon. And uh, yeah, as you said, it's two plants uh, brewed together, and it's pretty complicated jungle chemistry. I mean, one of the plants contains. Dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT, and uh, DMT is a naturally occurring chemical in our in our brain and our spinal column. Uh, it may be created by the pineal gland. Uh, it may sort of modulate dream states and sleep states, along with uh, melatonin. Uh, and uh, normally, it's orally inactive. I mean, if you try to eat it, it your your enzymes in the gut neutralize it. But the ayahuasca vine uh, contains uh, beta carbolines, which are MAO inhibitors. So they actually allow you to 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 take the uh, to have to have to have the DMT be orally effective, and it sort of sends you into like a three to five hour kind of waking dream state where you where you can see a lot of visions, often very beautiful visions. A lot of people see uh, snakes, jaguars, kind of archetypal deities. You can like have have kind of uh, interactions with what seem like spirits, uh, people from your past, and so on. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's probably. Uh, the most beautiful of, of the experiences that I had have, have been with ayahuasca. And, and even though it's a, it's a rough experience and that your uh, uh, digestive tract uh, gets a little bit distressed from it, correct? <laughs> yeah, it often causes nausea, but your system kind of acclimatizes to it after after a while. People often throw up uh, or purge when, when they first take it. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting you know developments with ayahuasca. I mean, definitely a lot of uh, Westerners have been going down there and made good relations with shamans and, and some have become shamans themselves. There's also uh, religions in Brazil that were started by uh, kind of mestizos in the 1920s that, that sort of mixed together Christianity and, and indigenous spirituality. And uh, one of those religions, uh, the United de Vegetalis, there was actually recently a U.S. Supreme Court case where they decided in the favor of this religion that they could use their, their, their uh, medicine in, in, in their ceremonies. So ayahuasca now has some uh, legal protection in the, in the United States. Wow! And even though the the uh, one of the active ingredients or the active ingredient, uh, the DMT, is uh, is illegal, even though it's contained in our bodies, and so we are actually always walking around with an illegal substance. Is that not correct? Yeah, I mean that that is kind of the you know kind of the ridiculous fact of it. I mean, I guess part of the argument they made in the courts was that. That refers to synthetic uh, DMT rather than naturally occurring DMT in plant material. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean DMT is a very. I mean, if you, you can also smoke, uh, extract DMT and smoke it. And uh, if you get a big hit of uh, hit of it that way, you experience the most powerful kind of altered state experience that really you can you can imagine as a person. I mean, my 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 uh, few times that I've done that, it's really like you almost like shoot out of your body into this uh, other dimension of kind of energy patterns and entities, and, and uh, has a little bit of a 
ominous, like mechanistic, uh, extra-dimensional feeling to it. And you really feel like, the, you know, you've almost entered this realm of uh, consciousness or intelligences that are, that are kind of developed way beyond where we've, where we've developed up to this point. Yeah, and it's this kind of very sci-fi realm, and there are these little entities. They're, they're elves or something like elves, and they, they do all kinds of amazing things with objects and, and seem to, yeah, have this deep, old intelligence and... Uh, uh, it's uh, I, I've never done it myself, but I, I've you know talked to several people and I actually interviewed Terence McKenna years ago about this. Mm-hmm. He was the first, the person that really popularized this. And 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 that is that that's you're saying pretty much the same thing about these little elf creatures and the the sci-fi sort of feel of all of this. Yeah, right. Well, I would say that that it's a it's a very multi-leveled experience. It's almost like there are different thresholds, and that kind of uh, elf realm is definitely one of the realms that you kind of enter into, either on ayahuasca sometimes, or definitely on DMT. I mean, there's a very interesting book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule, where, the, you know, basically nobody's been allowed to do research on psychedelics since the 60s. I mean, now that's beginning to change. But the first uh, research that was allowed was on DMT in the University of New Mexico. And this guy, Dr. Rick Strassman, gave it to a lot of people. And his interest in it was that he was a Buddhist, and um, he noticed in uh, Buddhist texts, they talk about the soul reincarnating seven weeks after death. And then he learned from studying, uh, you know, biology that the, in the human fetus, the pineal gland appears exactly seven weeks, uh, 49 days after conception. So he then thought that maybe there was a correlation here, and maybe there was some kind of chemical conduit that was produced by the pineal gland that would actually bring the uh, incarnating uh, soul into the body. Uh, so that's his thesis, that, that DMT would be that kind of a conductive medium. And I definitely find that to be a compelling and interesting thesis. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and we're uh, speaking today with Daniel Pinchbeck, and we're uh, discussing his book, Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism. And, uh, uh, Daniel, what was your, your follow-up book again, the title of that? Yeah, well, my new book is uh, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, which also sort of goes from shamanism into uh, prophecy. I can look at the Hopi prophecy and the classical Mayan civilization, and because the, the year 2012 is the end of the uh, long count of the Mayan calendar, and it seems to suggest a kind of shift in uh, world ages or a shift in human consciousness. So I, so I sort of met, you know, mesh that with my understanding of, of shamanism and mysticism and so on. Okay, and uh, your uh, web address? Uh, well, I just started a web magazine, which is realitysandwich.com, and I've also launched a, a new animation project, which explains some of the ideas for my new book, and that's at postmoderntimes.com. So Reality Sandwich and Postmodern Times are my, are my websites right now. Okay, and we'll give those out again before we're done today. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's... Uh, getting back to the, the Iboga ritual and the Ayahuasca ritual, they're, they're both these very profound experiences, but they, they have qualitative uh, differences. Uh, would you say that certain types of people might benefit more from the Iboga uh, initiation and other people might benefit more from the ayahuasca experience? Uh, I mean, I think the ayahuasca experience is a lot easier to handle. You know, I mean, then there, of course, there are other substances, too, I mean, like the mushrooms and peyote, um, you know, LSD, other synthetic psychedelics also. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously these substances are, are you know, still totally uh, illegal in our culture, uh, but, you know, there, there are other places where they're not illegal, uh, like South America and Africa and so on. So, you know, if people, 
you know, can, can do the research for themselves, and, and if they feel that such an experience, you know, is something they want to pursue, you know, there, there are ways for them to do it if they, if they connect with, uh, you know, tour groups or shamans in different cultures and so on. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the mushrooms there, and you have some great uh, stories in there about your experiences and other people's experiences that, that you conveyed in the book. Uh, the, the, I have to say, some of these were just really uh, hilarious in a most fascinating way, and then the ones with the, the Amanita muscaria and the... Uh, I believe this was a person you talked to who said they uh, had something about had a dream about them and then decided to eat them. And then <laughs> when he ate them, nothing happened for a, a bit. And then he turned around and there's these three giant, like, life-size mushrooms uh, sitting there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the mushrooms, uh, he said they looked as real as, you know, anything else looks. And they were kind of watching him. And finally they, they said to him, they asked him, you know, why did you eat us? And he said he explained to them they had this that he had this dream, and they kind of conferred with each other. And then they turned back to him and said, "Well, are you are you prepared to follow this path?" And he understood that it was the path of becoming a shaman. And he said yes. And then the mushrooms vanished. <laughs> yeah, I've never tried the amanita mushrooms, uh, which are they're sort of part of a lot of uh, folk legends in Europe. They're red and white spotted mushrooms. They hear a lot of fairy tales, of course, and there may be a historical relationship between the Santa Claus legend and, and these mushrooms. Yes. <laughs> so these Siberian shamans uh, who, who used uh, the Amanitas were reindeer herders, and the reindeer would drink uh, this sort of... Uh, when, when they ate the mushrooms, they could herd the mushrooms by pouring their, their piss onto the ground. Mm -hmm. the mushrooms would come from miles around. So, you know, so sort of this image of this red and white spotted character that herds reindeer and, and brings <laughs> visions from the other world and gifts from the other world sort of maybe what was the origin of our Santa Claus legend. Yeah, you, you always had to, if you really thought about it, you always had to wonder where that came from. It just seemed so bizarre, this guy in this yeah. red and white suit and these reindeers yeah. flying through the air. But yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, I've seen some interesting artwork that sort of conveys that. And uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, that was uh, rather humorous. So all of these things you're talking about, these things that can be seen and experienced through these different uh, psychedelic compounds, it, it, it alters how we view reality. Can Can you maybe put that in a nutshell for somebody who's maybe not done any of these psychedelics or, or only just slightly dabbled, you know, what this is telling us different about reality, kind of overall? Well, I think it's a number of things. I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, I guess my um, perspective, you know, based on my experiences and all that I've read, suggests that there is some kind of uh, domain of kind of plant consciousness or plant intelligence. And I think that this, this, you know, these plants are kind of these elder species compared to us, and they seem like they really want to communicate with us and even kind of guide us and help us. Uh, so I mean, that already is is very very extraordinary. You know, I mean, I've definitely gotten a lot of uh, deep personal insights. I mean, not just through the aboga, but through ayahuasca and mushrooms and so on. And you know, and some of that seems to be kind of leading away from our kind of uh, destructive uh, habits, our kind of artificial life patterns, you know, based on, on the civilization we've created. So they seem to point people towards a kind of more natural relationship with, with the world. And then they also seem to suggest that when you have these very intense visionary experiences that there, that there are like sort of other dimensions. You know, and of course, physics, like string theory, talks about there being like 10 or 11 different dimensions that may have different, like, you know, space-time kind of realities and connected to them. But 
but they don't really allow that for being something you can subjectively experience. But I, I think that um, you know that that the, the, the visionary experience that you can have from psychedelics is, is sort of giving you a clue that there's a lot of levels to reality that we just don't know about yet. We have we haven't accessed yet. There may be an astral plane. There may there may be many different dimensions which different types of consciousness exist. So I, I find that to be very, very hopeful and, and actually very positive because in a way we, we've, we've kind of, uh, you know, from the secular materialist logic, you know, we have a very nihilistic uh, mainstream worldview. You know? Yeah, it, it, and so to those sort of uh, fundamentalist materialists who, who say when you uh, talk about these experiences, well, it's just hallucination, I mean... The, the information that you get from these these plant substances or sometimes synthetic substances is often very useful, valid, and, and verifiable, that, that you get something, it gives you a message about something, and then you can follow up on that, and it's actually information that, that is, is valid. And, and you and several other people have, have experienced this. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be the case to me. And then also... You know, there's kind of um, other realms of kind of psychic experience that, that these seem to open up. You know, this is what happened in the 60s. I mean, with LSD and, and mushrooms and mescaline in the 60s, people were having these, you know, extraordinary psychic experiences. But it was really almost like too much for the culture at that point. You know, it was like too far out for the, for the paradigm that existed. So we kind of, you know, quickly shut the door and tried to bolt it in this whole realm. But, um, yeah, to, to, to me it suggests that... Um, you know, there's a kind of vast uh, domain of the psyche, uh, and and then also that the psychic and the physical worlds are much more intermeshed than than, than we've understood up to this point. And uh, you actually, in your book, you come down uh, pretty hard on on uh, Timothy Leary, and you talk about the '60s and all that stuff breaking out, and all this all this crazy information coming through from the psychedelic realm and there was no shamanic context or really any good context to put it in and and people like Leary you're saying just kind of uh, made things really bad for a lot of people yeah I mean you know it's, it's really not worth it to blame him it was kind of the, the context of the whole situation but you know if you look at Leary he was a behaviorist psychologist in, at Harvard through the through the 50s and he was 40 and he had his first psychedelic experience transformed his worldview but, you know, it was only about a year or two later when he was pontificating on it, writing manuals about it. I mean, that's just two years to kind of assimilate, you know, tens of thousands of years of, of shamanic experience. And uh, I, I think that he, he did a pretty superficial job and kind of helped to kind of, you know, amplify people's uh, fears, you know, rather, rather than, you know, taking it more slowly and more cautiously. Uh, you know, and it kind of like he, he, he was quick to see these, these things as, as answers. When I personally don't see them as answers, I feel them, you know, that they could, they could be considered tools, you know, yeah. instruments, uh, you know, for investigation. And, uh, you know, like any tool, you know, the more powerful the tool, the, the more it can be used or, or abused, you know. Right, and you say that they're ultimately ambiguous. They're not something that's this panacea or you know, something that's a, a horror, but, you know, it just depends on the context and the way they're used and many factors, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a pretty positive perspective on them, but yeah, I mean, they are ambiguous. I mean, and then if you look at different tribal cultures, you know, the shaman, you know, could also be the sorcerer. I mean, that's, we've, we've sort of now constructed the shaman in the New Age culture as this benevolent figure, but actually, you know, they were often seen as, as they, could, they could harm people, they could kill people. And then if you look back at the U.S. government, I mean, the military and the CIA were doing, like, sort of mind control experiments with, CIA, with uh, LSD and so on, you know, so, 
so yeah, so you know, like anything really powerful, you know, there, there's tremendous potential for use, but there's also potential for abuse. So it's kind of like our, our culturally, we have to become more uh, intelligent and more sophisticated if, if, if we are going to ever, you know, weave this stuff back into the, the mainstream culture. Yeah, is it? Uh, it seems that you're making the case in, in your book that the the more toxic elements of Western culture are the result of our long separation from a real spirituality, a long separation from these things like these plant teachers. Is that uh, would you would you say that was correct? Yeah, well, I think you have to see there's a kind of there's been a kind of logic in, in Western culture. I mean, going way back where we, you know, became obsessed with kind of our, our rational thought and our empirical thought, and we almost wanted to, you know, we almost violently uh, suppressed and, and and denied and and even, you know, uh, attacked uh, any other kind of knowledge system. You know, so in the Middle Ages, you know, the the, the sort of uh, there was the witch hunts where they went after anybody who possessed second sight. The, the witches were also the midwives and the, the, the herbalists. I mean, they, they had the knowledge of, of, you know, plant teachers in Europe. And then when we went on our colonialist uh, adventures, you know, we, we would sort of target the, the shamanic cultures and get rid of the, the holders of, of the knowledge system, you know. So, so yeah, so, so it's definitely something that uh, seemed to be very uh, anathema to our culture. You know, but then if you look at the recent history of psychedelics, I mean, we learn more and more about how powerful they've been as tools for a lot of people. I mean, it even came out that Francis Crick was taking uh, low doses of LSD when, when he uh, uncovered the double helix form of DNA. Uh, a lot of the Silicon Valley pioneers uh, you know, were, were involved with psychedelic culture in the 60s. You know, somebody like Steve Jobs said that psychedelic experiences were his most important you know, experiences. Uh, you know, so I think there are aspects of the Internet themsel- itself which are really due to, to a kind of uh, psychedelic uh, insights, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that, I think that sort of brings us around to an, another subject you touched on in, in the book, uh, and that is the, the Burning Man Festival. And, oh, you know, what is it about Burning Man that makes it I- important in relation to all of this? I mean, is it a, a hearkening back to the archaic technologies of ecstasy or a creation of a new shamanism for the Western world, or is it a little of both of that or something more? Uh, yeah, I guess it's a little of both of that and something more. You know, <laughs> I mean, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like it's um, offer, it sort of opens up a uh, creative space to kind of reimagine, you know, what culture could be and, and what civilization could be. And, uh, yeah, it, it does have a kind of uh, shamanic and transformative uh, energy to it. Yeah, yeah. and you uh, have been there, what, f- a few times to the festival, right? Well, yeah, I've gone seven, seven times, actually, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and you, you've talked about this interesting phenomenon of how uh, you and other people would say before going and after going to it, for months before and after, you'd have actually dreams about it. it it's it's that powerful what it does to uh, your consciousness. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely after the first time I went, I, I you know I, I was I was dreaming about it all the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really does feel like um, almost like some kind of futuristic uh, temporary utopia, you know. And part of that is also they, they, when you're at Burning Man, when you have to buy a lot of stuff on your way to get there, like food and stuff. But once you're there. You know, there's no money, there's no commerce, there's just a, a gift economy. Uh, not even not even bartering, it's, it's really gifting. It's that people make things, then they uh, just give them out to other people. So it just creates a totally different 
sense of what's uh, possible between people. Yeah. This is Out the Rabbit Hole. I'm Robert Larson. It's KUCI in Irvine. I'm speaking today with Daniel Pinchbeck. Uh, Daniel, I know we got started a little late today. Would it be possible for you to stay a little bit over into the next hour? Sure. Okay, great, great, because, uh, yeah, I want we... There's a lot to talk about here. So uh, this, uh, what I'm going to do is actually go to a little music here. This is something, it's actually a ayahuasquero uh, from South America doing some uh, singing, chanting that goes along with the ritual. And then uh, we, we'll go to that, and then we'll come back with a little more talk, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, okay? For sure. All right, so this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine, uh, 88.9 FM, and uh, we're heading into the next hour, which is usually the aggressive moderate, but I'm filling in for Will Bruzzo today, so we can just kind of scoot uh, out the rabbit hole over into that hour a bit, okay? So let's uh, hear this um, ayahuasca uh, music. Oof. 